everyone. Good to see you tonight. Trust you've had a good day. Yes? Yeah. Good, good, good. Uh, we are in Second Thessalonians tonight, page 99. So if you have your, your book, why don't you turn to uh, page 99. You know, it's interesting. There's a lot of Christians that don't care about what we are discussing this week as far as the rapture, the tribulation period. But it's interesting, we've got two books in the New Testament that are really given to eschatology, to this very subject, which is 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. Tremendous dominant theme related to these uh, subjects, of, related to the rapture, the tribulation period. And so uh, it is definitely worthy of study. I think even as new Christians, uh, Paul presented this to the, these people who are brand new believers he's presenting this to. So you say, well, this is just for old saints. No, not really. Even new Christians can appreciate the truth of uh, the coming of Christ. Let's pray together and then we'll get into our study here. Lord, again, we thank you for the privilege to assemble. Thank you for all the workers, all the other classes that are ongoing. We pray that they would be blessed of you. Again, we thank you for this facility that we can meet in and for this uh, time of uh, uh, concentrated study together uh, tonight in Second Thessalonians for our class. So we ask your blessing on our evening, on all the classes that are ongoing. Pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Well, let's get started here. Second Thessalonians, uh, the theme is the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord relates to uh, God's day of judgment. Uh, does everybody have a book? If, you're, if you need a book, there's one up here. Feel free to come up and get one if you need one. Does everybody have a book? Okay. Just don't want to leave anybody out. It's kind of important here. <laughs> All right. <clears throat> uh, theme is uh, the day of the Lord. And uh, the author, of course, is the Apostle Paul. And uh, we think it was written 51, 52, probably a few months after 1 Thessalonians, making it one of the earliest of Paul's letters, by the way. This is, he wrote this early. So, um, and note the purpose. Uh, he is writing with essentially three main things in view to encourage the Thessalonian Christians in the context of persecution. This is one of the reasons they're troubled and, and confused, by the way. If you're going through intense persecution, you might wonder, well, maybe... Maybe we are going to experience the, the day of judgment. Maybe we're in it. Maybe we, especially if you've got false teachers kind of putting these, you know, ideas in your head. So he's writing to uh, encourage them in that, in that context. Number two, to clarify that the day of the Lord's judgment has not come. And he's real emphatic about this. And three, to correct the slackers among them, which we will get to in chapter three. Won't get there till uh, tomorrow night. But, you know, in this... He's, he's strong. If any would not work, neither should he eat. Can you imagine a loving Christian saying, nope, no food for you. <laughs> I mean, if any would not work, neither should he eat. I mean, strong work ethic. Uh, and he's emphasizing that. Okay, uh, let's uh, put up the outline here. Yeah, that's last time. Um, no, that's it. That's our, that's our outline right there. So yeah, uh, greeting, encouragement in the context of persecution, clarifying issues surrounding the day of the Lord. Uh, commandments regarding those who are disorderly and lazy, and then the benediction. And once again, <clears throat> as far as uh, where we are talking about, as far as our map, uh, Thessalonica is up here. Uh, so uh, this is the area he's talking about. Of course, Paul spent, you know, he had a lot of area he, he dealt with on his, on his missionary journeys. But uh, right up here, this little area right up in here is that where he's addressing. Okay, let's talk a little background here. Let's jump down to the fourth point there. <clears throat> 18 of the 47 verses, that is 38% of the book, deals uh, with eschatology. Eschatology, that's kind of a fancy word, $50 word, right? It means last things, uh, end time things, future things. First uh, and Second Thessalonians are sometimes called the eschatological epistles, and rightly so. Uh, they center around the rapture and the day of the Lord that follows respectively. So this is the main subject of these two epistles. That's why I say it does matter. I run into a lot of Christians who say, it doesn't matter. Well, it's true. Your salvation is not dependent upon this. But I do think it has something to do with the, the blessed hope that we have as Christians. Uh, what our anticipation is. The Lord has a special place of blessing for those who, who love his appearing. And so this is to be uh, the anticipation, the expectation of God's people. And, and it is important to us, uh, or he wanted to put it in here. Uh, number five there, the people were troubled because they had previously been taught to expect deliverance from the day of the Lord judgment. 
But now they were being told by false teachers that they were indeed in it. And add to this, again, they were currently experiencing severe persecution. So you put that together, they are somewhat confused. Uh, Page 100, number 6, Paul emphasizes that the day of the Lord's judgment cannot come until two things happen. First, number one, the departure. And number two, the man of sin is revealed. Only these two things are mentioned. He mentioned anything about Gog and Magog, right? Nope, he didn't. Uh, Neither of these things had happened, so they couldn't be in the day of the Lord. He's saying these two things have to be in place before the coming of the day of the Lord. And so uh, let me put this up here. We've got uh, chapter 2, verse 3. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. And so the issue becomes, what do we mean by falling away? What does the text mean by falling away? Uh, It is literally departure. And it can refer to a departure such as the rapture, where you depart from one place to another. Or it can refer to uh, doctrinal uh, departure, where you apostatize, where you leave the faith. Both of these are legitimate. So what is the right meaning? Well, that's what we're going to deal with. Uh, I think it's the rapture myself, but others have other views. Uh, But then the other one, the second thing here is that the man of sin is revealed, the, the son of perdition. So those two things have to be in place. Uh, Just a reminder as far as the timeline, uh, we're in the church age, and then the rapture will follow. Uh, I mean, that will be the conclusion of the church age. And then comes the day of the Lord. The seven-day tribulation period concludes with the second coming, and then that sets up the uh, 1,000-year reign, and then the eternal state. That's just a general overview, a prophetic timeline in terms of what we're looking at. Okay, let's get started. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Skip that first uh, paragraph. Paul is clearly the writer, again, as seen in 317, but Silvanus, also called Silas and Timothy, were both with him. Uh, Next paragraph. This greeting is addressed to the church, literally the called out ones of the Thessalonians, uh, The word church by itself simply means a called out assembly, uh, but it is the word that the Holy Spirit chose to apply to God's called out people. We're called out of the world. We now belong to Jesus Christ. We are the church. We are the called out ones. And uh, jump to the next uh, sentence there. This is the church of God, also called the church of Christ. They are called out of this world, and they are now in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. In simply means being, uh, being or remaining within. It denotes a context of location. It denotes union. Okay, let's go to the next page, page 101. Top of the page there. <clears throat> Those in union with God have him as their spiritual father. He's our father. Father indicates that we are spiritual children. You know, fathers have children, right? That's, that's one of the definitions of being a father. And as our father, he takes care of us. That's what fathers do, is they have the responsibility to take care of their children. Uh, He is over us, and he is our corrector, provider, protector. Lord means master and refers to Christ's deity. He is our God master. The name Jesus means savior. Put it together, he is is Lord, he is savior, he's God master. Uh, He is uh, the deliverer, the savior. Uh, Next paragraph. Uh, Note that God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ here are linked as they are so consistently, indicating their equality. To be one, uh, to be in one is to be in both. One can't have a relationship with the Father and not the Son, and vice versa. Uh, They are a package. Uh, Be in union with one uh, is to be in union with both. Verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, we expect Paul to introduce himself that way, right? To introduce a book that way. I mean, this is his consistent way of doing it. Uh, there is grace and peace associated with salvation, but Paul in a, is addressing those already in Christ who are already saved. In view is grace and peace associated with Christian living. And he is really denoting the, uh, the attitude of God towards his people. Uh, Grace here is God's unmerited favor related to empowerment. It's God's constant grace supplied for Christian living. Uh, Grace upon grace upon grace. That is is our experience. Uh, God graces us day in and day out 
uh, with all that we have in him. Uh, grace always comes first. Next, next paragraph there. Grace always comes first, but it flows out. But out of it flows peace. So they are always linked to, together consistently. But grace is always first and then peace. Everything's based on the grace of God. And out of that flows all the, all the other blessings of God. Uh, next paragraph, Paul's reminder to these believers is that now in the position of being in God, they are constant beneficiaries of God's enabling power and peace in their Christian experience. Verse 3, we are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting because your faith grows exceedingly and the love of every one of you abounds toward each other. Now, you remember in the first uh, epistle, he was praying that they would grow and that their faith would grow. And now he is praising God just a short time later that it has been growing. Uh, skip that first paragraph there. Often people see thanksgiving for people as optional. But Paul stresses this to the point that it would be wrong for them not to do this. Um, as it is fitting. We are bound to thank God for you, brethren, as it is fitting. Um, he's very thankful for these people and feels obligated to do so. Uh, page 102, top of the page there. In the first letter, uh, Paul had made mention that elements in their faith was lacking, and he prayed that it would abound in love. Now prayer has been answered, and Paul feels indebted to thank God continually for what he is doing in their lives. So it's always good to remember to thank God for what he is doing, especially after we've been asking him uh, to work. Uh, skip that next paragraph. Faith is reliance upon God and his promises. It takes God at his word, rests in what he says. It holds to God's word. Faith is simply believing God. That's what it is. Faith is just taking God at his word. God says it, and we accept it. We, we believe it. Growing faith in this context demonstrated itself in the midst of great persecution, which wouldn't compromise God's word. So I think our faith is tested sometimes, especially in the context of challenging times and difficult times. And they were passing the test at this point. Next paragraph. Their love, that's the Greek word agape, the intense word for love, also abounds toward each other. Next paragraph. Note the order here. Faith comes first and then love. Love, again, is the outflow of true faith. Where faith grows, we would expect that love would too, since, as Paul says, faith works through love, as seen in Galatians 5, 6. So again, we have paired together very consistently faith and love. And the expectation is that if we have true faith, it will demonstrate itself in love. All right, come down to verse 4. Uh, so that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure. So again, he's commending them for, for what they're going through and how they're enduring. There is a place for uh, sanctified bragging, I would think. It seems so, uh, but not in yourself. Notice he says here, uh, we uh, ourselves boast of you among the churches. Uh, end of the bottom of the page here. Let another man praise you, not your own mouth. So yeah, you don't want to go tooting your own horn, right? But there's a place maybe to you know, talk about somebody else and, and how they are excelling. Uh, page 103. The word boast is often used in the negative sense, but here Paul applies it in a positive sense. Paul and his team are boasting about the Thessalonians in terms of their perseverance and faith in the midst of persecution. That was commendable. Uh, it was an exemplar, it was a exemplary and praiseworthy. So, uh, but note uh, that even this sanctified boasting flows out of thankfulness to God for what he has been doing in their lives, as seen in verse 3. Uh, seen in this way, this really is bragging on God and his work in their lives. So I think it really, our bragging comes back to God, and we brag on God and what he's doing in people's lives, even when we are commending them. Ultimately, it redounds back to God. Okay, come down to the middle of the page and the uh, bold patience. Uh, patience means perseverance, uh, steadfastness, or endurance when going through difficult circumstances. The test of true faith is persecution. There we go. Uh, you know, I think the American church is about to be tested. You know, how, how deep is the American church? We often said it's an inch deep and a mile wide. 
we are probably about to be tested. The test of true faith is persecution. Um, I don't want to be Peter and say, well, Lord, no matter what, I will stand. <laughs> Flesh is willing, uh, but uh, sometimes the, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So we want to be humble about it, that's for sure. Um, but I think the grace of God sees the true believer through. Uh, skip the reference there. The context here is very important. The Thessalonians were being told that the extreme persecution they were experiencing was an indication that they were in the day of the Lord judgment. That's what false teachers are telling them. Uh, by the way, it's kind of a lesson. If you go by circumstances, it will probably lead you wrong. You have to go by theology, what God's revelation is, not by your circumstances. I mean, that's what Job's friends made the mistake, right? I mean, Job was going through terrible, hard times. There must be sin in your life. Look at your circumstances. Circumstances are not the ultimate indicator. Uh, God does work through circumstances, but really what we got to go by uh, is the Word of God. Uh, in fact, uh, Paul will go on to show that perseverance in the context of persecution is an indication of kingdom citizenship. True faith is not exempt from persecution, but rather perseveres in spite of it. Paul here ties patience, that is perseverance, with faith. Faith is indeed the source of patience. Uh, believers keep on keeping on because of their faith. Faith drives perseverance. So again, how do you test faith? Well, one of the ways is do you endure in hard times? I think the phony just kind of walk away when the going gets tough, but the genuine, by the grace of God, do persevere. They may even fall down sometimes in, the, in that whole process, but ultimately they do not deny the faith and they keep on keeping on. These people are going through persecution, and he is commending them for standing. Uh, bottom of the page, the church had been born in a context of persecution. You can look back at the context there in Acts 17. And both First and Second Thessalonians indicate it continued to be an ongoing experience. So these people, this was not an easy believism uh, where, you know, okay, wow, yeah, I'll take some fire insurance. No, if I'm going to take a stand for Christ, it's going to mean persecution. That was their context. Well, top of page 104, because of this, Paul was thankful for them and boasted of them. He set them forth as an example to follow. Verse 5. He says, which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. Uh, let's jump down here uh, to the bold. Manifest evidence means an evidence or a plain indication. It refers to a thing pointed out or a thing proved. It's evidence or proof of something. So I take it here when he says that the manifest evidence involved the persecutions they were experiencing because of their faith and their enduring response to them. These persecutions made something evident, namely the righteous judgment of God. Um, realize that these believers were expecting the judgment of God to fall on the world as a thief in the night, as Paul brought out for Thessalonians 5. They themselves had been taught that they were to be delivered from God's wrath, as seen earlier in 1 Thessalonians, so righteous judgment in their minds is related to imminent judgment that could fall on the world at any time. Uh, on what basis would this judgment come? On what basis? I mean, wh why? Uh, what is the meaning of it? Well, on the basis of rebellion against God and His truth as witnessed in the persecution of His people. This is why they are suffering persecution. These people are rebelling against the God of truth and against the truth of God. So, God's judgment of these people is righteous, as was clearly seen in their persecution of the people of faith. I think that's, that's the point. So, next paragraph. Part of the manifest evidence is their persevering faith in the face of persecution. This persevering faith, which demonstrates the reality of God's sustaining grace in their lives, was powerful testimony to the truth of the living God. Persevering faith in the face of hostile persecution is damning evidence of gospel truth. It is God on display in the lives of his people. Hostile rejection of it shows great rebellion and is a manifest demonstration of why God's judgment of this rebellion is just. It shows that God is right in dealing with these unbelievers in this way. 
You say, well, why? Is it right for God to bring this judgment? Yeah, look what they have done to his people. This is a righteous judgment. This is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God, uh, bringing this judgment on them because of what they've done to his people. All right, page 105, top of the page. Note that God often links coming judgment with the mistreatment of his people. Jesus Christ takes the persecution of his people very personally. Uh, You want to kind of get to God? Just pick on his people. I mean, he doesn't appreciate that at all. Uh, When uh, Saul is persecuting the church, and I mean, he's just relentless going after the church. Here Jesus Christ appears to him on on the road to Damascus. And uh, Acts 9, 4, Then he fell to the ground, heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul! Why are you persecuting me? And of course, Saul says, who are you? (laughs) Well, I am Jesus. Uh, He's persecuting the people of God, which is like persecuting the body of Christ, persecuting Jesus. Jesus takes it very personal. Uh, Skip that next paragraph. The martyrs in heaven cry, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Isn't that an interesting statement? You might think that those in heaven wouldn't care anymore, right? Uh, Why would they care about God, you know, dealing with these unbelievers and how they have martyred them and and how they have treated them? Say, well, we're in heaven now. It's all good. No, they're they're crying out, uh, how long, O Lord, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? That's an interesting cry in heaven, isn't it? The vicious persecution which the world hands out to God's people of persevering faith is an example of why God's judgment that will come upon the world is righteous. That's the point here. But there's another purpose uh, that suffering for the faith serves. He says that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God. By the way, this clearly shows we're not there yet. I mean, it's coming. We are citizens of the kingdom we're not in the kingdom yet. So kingdom now theology is an interesting concept. Really allegorizes a whole lot, makes it all spiritual, where the, the, the scriptures are very clear that the messianic kingdom is a literal kingdom where the king will actually reign on David's throne in Jerusalem. And we are headed there. And he says, this is happening that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God. The verb translated counted worthy does not mean to make worthy but rather to declare worthy. It's a judicial term, which means to reckon worthy. That you may be is used to show purpose. God allows his suffering to the end that it demonstrates them as worthy. It does not mean they are made worthy by the suffering process, but simply that they are recognized as worthy. And uh, so jump down uh, to Edmund Hebert there. The sufferings are not meritorious, Uh, procuring their entry into the kingdom, for their sufferings are the outcome of having already been saved. And again, MacArthur says, their suffering was not, of course, the basis of the Thessalonians' salvation, but the evidence of it. Uh, Jump down under the Romans 8.17 reference. In a real sense, suffering for true faith in Christ serves as a manifest evidence that one is a kingdom citizen. It serves as a proof that God will declare a person kingdom-worthy. The road to the kingdom is marked with suffering. Did not Christ say, take up your cross and follow me? Those that will not take their stand for Christ, who refuse to suffer for him, have a very questionable faith. You know, it's just not me that's saying that. I mean, Revelation 21.8 says this. But the cowardly, you know, those that are afraid to take their stand because they might suffer. The cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. What's interesting to me is that the cowardly are here right in the same list as murder, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, etc. Page 106. He says, For which you also suffer... This uh, Note, this phrase indicates that they are uh, not alone in suffering, for which you also suffer. There are others that are also going through this. 
so other believers are also suffering. Paul and his company uh, constantly suffered. I mean, this is, the, this is the book of Acts, the early church. And boy, things were happening in the book of Acts. But everywhere you went, there was persecution happening. You know, I, I sometimes wonder if we're a little more faithful, we might suffer a little more. Uh, it just goes with the turf. Believers all over the world ever since have followed in that pattern. Uh, Acts 14.22, uh, on his follow-up ministry, uh, Paul says there that he went about strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, and saying, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom. We're on our way to the kingdom, and how do we get there? Through sufferings. And we're going to face many sufferings. And none of us want to do that, but I just think it goes with the turf. Uh, Christ said uh, in John 15, If you are of the world, the world will love its own, but because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. The, the, the world is not <clears throat> kind of neutral towards us. The world actually does hate us as believers. We should expect to be hated, especially if we're taking a, a real uncompromised stand for, for Jesus Christ. No one normally wants to suffer, but once we realize that commitment to Christ involves a call to suffering, it changes our perspective. And indeed it does. Uh, skip the references there. Really what Paul is telling us is that godly living invariably will involve suffering on some level. You just can't get away from it. Uh, like to. Nobody wants it, like I say. But instead of thinking this is God's judgment on me or that it is an indication of being in the day of the Lord judgment, we need to realize it is ultimately an indication of kingdom citizenship. This kind of goes with it. If you're a kingdom citizen, you would probably expect, okay, there's some suffering that goes with that. Being the king's child relates to suffering. Now it's what they did to him. That's what they'll do to us as well. It's a declaration of true faith. So Paul brings out the persecution serves two purposes. Number one, it makes evident that God's coming judgment on the wicked who persecute his people, persevering in faith, is totally just. I mean, that's a, that's a righteous thing for God to do, to bring judgment on those who have so afflicted his people. Number two, it serves to demonstrate that his people are worthy of the kingdom. Kingdom people are those willing to suffer for Christ. In contrast, you have the cowardly who refuse to do so. That becomes quite questionable. Not that we can't fail, we do. Peter failed. I mean, we can fail. But uh, Peter came around then, and what did he end up doing? Ended up being martyred for the cause of Christ and said, I'm not worthy to be crucified like my Lord, insisted on being uh, crucified upside down. That was the end of the story. Our calling is in the pattern of our Lord, first the cross, then the kingdom. Uh, the fact of our suffering for him affirms our position in the kingdom. Suffering serves as a recognition that we have the right kind of faith. Uh, bottom of the page, some time ago, John MacArthur wrote a little book uh, titled, I really should say titled, uh, Found God's Will. In it, he spelled out five uh, simple things related to God's will. Top of the page here, uh, in this little booklet, he says, Found God's will, it's God's will for you to be saved. God desires all men to be saved. Uh, number two, it's God's will for you to be filled with the Spirit. It's a command for God, uh, for us to be filled with the Spirit. Number three, God's will is for you to be sanctified. And four, God's will is for you to be submissive. And finally, God's will is for you to suffer, for you to suffer. 1 Peter 2.21, For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example. Philippians 1.29, For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe, but also to suffer for his sake. I mean, this too is part of the Christian's calling. Verse 6, Since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you. So he's continuing on in the same vein here. Uh, note the word righteous in verse 6 is the very same word used in verse 5 when it speaks of the righteous judgment of God. Righteous means it is right and just. God is one day going to judge the world for how they have abused and persecuted his people. Skip the next paragraph. Tribulation means suffering. It's the same word used in verse 4 in speaking of the persecutions and tribulations which they were enduring. Just as the, believer, as, just as the unbelievers have made God's people suffer, so then God is going to turn the tables and make them suffer in keeping with righteous judgment. 
And all of heaven is really crying out for this, as we saw earlier. Page 108. Top of the page. It is a righteous thing with God to repay. uh, The old preacher says, payday someday. Uh, But of course, if people repent, they can escape payday for sin on the basis of grace. And that is really the ultimate desire. Not that people would experience the judgment of God. We want them to escape. Uh, We all deserve the judgment of God apart from the grace of God. So we are praying that they would escape, that they would come to the place of refuge, the place of safety that is found uh, in Jesus Christ and through faith in him. Uh, Next uh, paragraph. All the way through this whole context, there is a set of contrasts. Everyone will reap as they have sown, whether it be for good or bad. The key point in this text is to encourage those undergoing persecution by showing them that God will one day turn the tables. He will. Yes, he will. There's going to be a reversal of roles. Justice is going to be served. All these people clamor for justice today. I don't think they want the kind of justice that God's going to deal out, though. Sometimes it's kind of like I want my piece of flesh. Uh, Those suffering now for their faith will be vindicated, and those uh, persecutors will be punished. And so he says, verse 7, And to give you who are troubled, that is, suffering affliction, suffering persecution, to give you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. So the context here is clearly the second coming of Jesus Christ. It's not the rapture. Uh, Yes, there is a rest associated with death, and there is a rest associated with the rapture. But something more is involved here. And so we note the order of things. Uh, The next event on God's prophetic calendar is the rapture, followed by the the judgment of God that will come upon the entire world that we commonly call the seven-year tribulation period. But then at that second coming, uh, there is going to be this rest that he is talking about here in this context. Uh, under, the, uh, under that, rest uh, refers to relief from tension as when a bow is relaxed. Uh, when you consider this whole context in its entirety, the issue is role reversal and complete vindication for the saints. The character of this rest relates to the glory of the kingdom. The fullness of this vindication and the manifestation of it will take place in conjunction with the second coming. This is called the times of refreshing. In Acts 3.19, Romans 8 speaks of the glory that will then be revealed in us and calls it the revealing of the sons of God. So yes, the rapture will bring about our glorification, but the manifestation of the complete vindication of the saints awaits the second coming. This full-orbed vindication, which will be manifested in conjunction with the second coming, is evidently what Paul refers to as rest for the persecuted saints. This is the answer to the prayer in Revelation chapter 6. So I take it that the word rest here has more in view than simply relief from suffering. I take it that it also includes the ideas of vindication and role reversal addressed in the surrounding context. The rest uh, will be experienced when the Lord is revealed. The word revealed is the Greek word apocalypsis, meaning something is disclosed, made known, or unveiled. In this case, it is the Lord Jesus. Uh, Paul commonly uses the word Perusia, meaning presence in relationship to Christ coming for the church. But here he's using the, the other word. Uh, next paragraph there. Here in verse 7, Paul used the word apocalypsis, meaning the revelation, the unveiling of the Lord Jesus. That which was previously hidden from the world will now be openly made known. Page 107. That's 109, rather. <laughs> Going backwards. Uh, Page 109. uh, Under the uh, quote there, At his second coming, Jesus will come from heaven with his mighty angels. It's going to be quite a sight. And so again, here's the the two prominent Greek words. uh, Perusia, apocalypsis. Perusia means his arrival uh, to to be with his royal highness. We're going to be with him. So shall we ever be with the Lord when we see him. Uh, we're going to be right in his presence. But Apocalypse, is, the, the emphasis is unveiling his power and glory disclosed. And what a sight that's going to be as Christ comes with great power and great glory, as it says here in, Reve- in Revelation, yeah, 2 Thessalonians 1.8. 
in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God, on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. In flaming fire is intensely stated with the sense of it being in blazing fire. Fire often displays the glory of God as in the Shekinah glory. In context, this seems to portray Christ's righteous anger towards sin. Thus, the fire relates to his judging activity at the second coming. So notice, in flaming fire taking vengeance, how's he coming? I mean, the first time he came meek and mild as a little lamb. The second time, he's coming powerfully as a lion taking vengeance. In fire taking vengeance. Uh, Skip the reference. Vengeance is the exacting of God's holy justice. He will give them exactly what they have coming in perfect accord with His holiness. This fiery vengeance will be directed to those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel. Uh, Note, uh, jump down towards the bottom of the page, just above the reference there. The phrase on those who do not know God means those who do not have a personal relationship with Him. Next page, page 110. Under the uh, Romans 10.14 reference. But there are those who uh, do hear the gospel and yet reject. They are all the more responsible. Jesus said, to whom much is given, much is required. Paul makes special mention of these people when he says, On those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These are people who heard the gospel and they didn't want anything to do with it. One cannot remain neutral to this message. You either accept it or reject it. There's no middle ground. Uh, Paul here really deals with the nature of saving faith in relationship to the gospel. I want to really emphasize that word obey. They did not obey the gospel. The gospel is a message that is to be obeyed, that is to be submitted to in that sense. He describes it involving the element of obedience. God commands that we believe on Jesus Christ. In Romans, Paul talks about the obedience of faith. Saving faith involves a response of obedience in the heart. It's a response of faith that accepts the truth of Jesus Christ for who he is as Savior and Lord. Faith is not merely an intellectual thing. It's also a matter of the will, a matter of the heart. The convicting ministry of the Spirit is clear. The ultimate issue is what will people do with the truth of Christ that he convicts them of? That becomes the issue. Are you, are you going to obey the gospel? Or are you going to say, I don't want to obey it. I'm not going to submit to that. I don't, I don't want to accept the truth of Jesus Christ. That's what it comes down to. William MacDonald, the gospel is not simply a statement of facts to be believed, but a person to be obeyed. Belief in the New Testament sense involves obedience. We're not saved by the obedience of works, but we are saved by the obedience of faith. Of course, God's the Savior. But uh, this is the issue. Uh, They refuse to obey the gospel. And this is where the lordship of Christ comes in. Some see saving faith as purely passive. They see saving faith as passively resting on Christ as Savior, but not having nothing to do with his lordship. However, the word believe in the gospel of John is always a verb showing its active nature. The Bible clearly shows we must believe on the Lord Jesus to be saved. That is, we must believe on Him as Lord as well as Savior, and that reality intersects with obedience. Not the obedience of works, but the obedience of faith. Okay, uh, we're going to stop because it's 10 after 7. We'll come back and uh, start there on page 111. Let's pray together. Lord, again, we thank You for uh, the wonderful truth of deliverance that is found in Jesus Christ. And Lord, right now, our brothers and sisters throughout the whole world are being persecuted. More people are being martyred now than ever in the history of the world. And uh, Lord, there is going to be a reckoning one day. Uh, You are going to one day turn the tables around as clearly spelled out in 2 Thessalonians. Payday someday. Certainly, we hope that all these people would come to repentance, as Paul did, uh, the great persecutor of the early church. And uh, so we, that's the ultimate desire for them. But Lord, if they don't come, uh, your judgment is righteous. Lord, uh, bless our fellowship now. Thank you for the food and for the hands that prepared it. Pray in Christ's name, amen. All right, I'll see you back in 20 minutes. Lord will. Here, what happened? I guess they are.
I took them right up to maybe one minute after. They're, they're, they're taking advantage of that. Ah, we'll wait a minute or two yet. There is. There is actually a partial rapture theory. Yeah. But, you know, it's not a credible theory, but it is a theory. Yeah, there's almost a theory for anything out here. There's lots of theories. Yep, oh yeah, for sure. Okay. I have to wait for Terry to get up here. When Terry gets in his in his perch, you, you know... I guess we, we do. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Okay, well, we're going to uh, pick it up uh, where we left off. And uh, where we've been leaving off is at uh, the commentary on 2 Thessalonians 1.8. And uh, that verse says, In flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. I want to talk for just a moment about that last phrase and uh, those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, If you look to the bottom of page 111, uh, right above the footnote, God's vengeance will one day fall on all those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a gospel of grace, but it must be responded to by the obedience of faith, which recognizes Christ as Savior and Lord. Summary statement. But note I say at the footnote here, here's, here's one of my issues with five-point Calvinism. Uh, five-point Calvinism claims that Christ died only for the elect. This point is called limited atonement. However, if Christ died only for the elect, then how can it be that the non-elect do not obey the gospel? Uh, if Jesus didn't die for them, then there is no gospel for them to disobey, right? If the gospel is that Christ died for our sins... If he didn't die for them, how can they be disobedient to it? I mean, it doesn't even apply to them. He didn't even die for them. They're not disobeying anything. It doesn't make sense to me on on the basis of this verse right here. So if Jesus didn't die for them, there's no gospel for them to disobey. There is nothing for them to reject. How can one disobey the gospel that Christ died for sin and rose again if he didn't die for them? The point is he did die for them, and that's why they are accountable. That's the whole point here that he's making. All right, page 112. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Uh, The word punish is actually a translation of two Greek words, one meaning pay, the other meaning penalty. It literally means pay the penalty. These will pay the penalty of everlasting destruction. Uh, Everlasting is the very same word used elsewhere in relation to everlasting life. But in view here is everlasting destruction. Next paragraph, everlasting destruction is the exact opposite of everlasting life. Sometimes people say something foolish, like everyone has everlasting life. No, 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 they don't. Uh, That's not true. We all have everlasting existence. But the lost have everlasting destruction, everlasting death. Everlasting separation from God. Life relates to union with God. We have everlasting life, living in union with God. They have everlasting separation, everlasting death. So we don't all have everlasting life. We all have everlasting existence. Uh, In view here is not annihilation, but ruination. This is everlasting ruin. It is utter loss of well-being. So note everlasting destruction. That's the concept of it. Uh, It is the loss of all that makes existence meaningful and worthwhile. Uh, The lost will not cease to exist, but will experience a forever existence that is useless, hopeless, and empty. It will be void of meaning, value, worth, accomplishment, or purpose. It is a state of endless ruin and torment. I really shudder to think about hell and what the Bible teaches about hell. I really wish it wasn't so. It's so terrible, you can't get your, your head around it, especially if you have loved ones that you really are fearful that they didn't know the Lord and they died in their sin, they went to an eternal hell. It's just really horrifying to think about. Uh, But notice what Jesus says uh, here in our next slide here in Matthew 25, 46. I'm using New American Standard because it's a little more literal here. Uh, These will go away into eternal punishment. 
but the righteous into eternal life. It's the same word in the Greek that's used in relationship to punishment as it is in relationship to life. So some will experience eternal punishment. Some will experience eternal life. Uh, Everybody's going to experience something eternally. That's either going to be punishment or life. Note the two forms in this verse, uh, the two froms, rather, in this verse. Uh, From the presence of the Lord is more literally from from the face of the Lord, as presence literally means face. The classic blessing in the Old Testament relates to the Lord's face shining on you and lifting up his countenance upon you. This denotes the Lord's favor and blessing. But the lost will be separated away from God's presence. They will not know his blessing or his favor. This is the essence of hell. It's a place of unsatisfied desires. We were created by God and and for God, and only God can really satisfy us. Now these rebels find themselves in a place of endless ruin with no hope of satisfaction. Um, It's it's horrible beyond imagination. Uh, Note, uh, and they are cut off from the glory of his power. The word glory refers to splendor or greatness. Power refers to strength or might. Uh, Jump down to about the middle of that long paragraph there. Now they will know nothing of his glorious power. They will experience outer darkness. They didn't appreciate God. So he will cut them off from his glory entirely. Too late they will find out that all that was good and truly enjoyable came from his good hand. Too late. All right, page 113. Second paragraph there. Today, the doctrine of God's judgment is shunned, and instead, many preach a false gospel of tolerance. Postmodern thinking goes by feelings. You know, what feels good, that's my truth. You have your truth, I have my truth, and I just kind of go by my feelings. Um, everyone's views are to be accepted. That's the idea of tolerance. There's no, there's no absolute truth. There's no absolute right and wrong. Uh, and they say uh, a God of loving tolerance is okay, but, but a God of holy judgment, now that is one thing that will not be tolerated. But the word of our God shall stand forever. For true believers, the word of our God is our authority, and it ends the argument. And it clearly paints the picture of an eternal hell versus an eternal heaven. Uh, verse 10. When he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe, because our testimony among you was believed. In contrast to the experience of the lost in verse 9, in the day he comes, the day of his second coming, Christ will be glorified in his saints, and he will be admired in all those who are believers. While the persecutors are destined for endless ruin, the saints are destined for glory. Um, come down to uh, Hebert's quote there. The meaning may be that his glory will be reflected in the saints, being as it were mirrors reflecting his glory, but more probably the meaning is that Christ will be glorified when it is openly displayed that what he has wrought in his saints, now assembled with him in glorified bodies and perfect in spirit. Uh, Jump down to admired, uh, the bold there. Admired among is more literally admired in. Isn't that interesting? Literally, admired in. Admired is the idea of causing marvel or astonishment. It is to breathtakingly wonder at. It indicates the spectators will be amazed and filled with wonder and admiration. Imagine people looking, looking on us and say, Wow! Uh, I'm pretty sure that's going to happen, especially in relationship to me. You know, wow, look what God's doing with that character. Uh, that's the idea here. This is the revealing of the sons of God as found in Romans 8.19. It will be a glorious revelation as we are the trophies of grace and it will be revealed what this all means. Next paragraph. So who other than the saints will do the marveling? Are we just going to sit and marvel at each other? I'm sure there'll be some of that. But probably the angels are in view. Perhaps it also includes the unbelieving world prior to their banishment from the kingdom who previously had held the saints in contempt. However, Paul does not elaborate on exactly who all the spectators are, only that it will happen. Uh, Next uh, paragraph there. Note very carefully the strong emphasis on belief. It is those who believed who will partake in this experience. These are in contrast to those who would not obey the gospel. Again, the issue is the obedience of faith. All right, page 114, top of the page there. 
And then to drive the point home and make it very personal, Paul says, because our testimony among you was believed. It's on the basis of their faith in Paul's gospel testimony that they will be there. Isn't that, isn't that awesome to think about? There's going to be people, some people in heaven because they believed the gospel testimony that you shared with them. On that basis, they're going to be there. What an amazing reality. On that basis, I'm going to be there. Uh, we're there on the basis of our faith. It's on the basis of their faith in Paul's gospel testimony that they'll be there. Note the double emphasis on belief among all those who believe. And because our testimony among you was believed. This is the destiny of believers. All believers in the church age. So uh, note the contrast here. We have the persecutors repaid with tribulation. Verse 6, fiery vengeance, everlasting destruction. That's their lot. And then you have the believers. They will rest. There will be vindication. Uh, Christ will be glorified in. Christ will be admired in. So what a contrast. Uh, Praise the Lord for this uh, reality over here. Verse 11. Therefore, we also pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of his calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power. So in verse 5, we saw that persecution brings out that the saved are kingdom worthy. It does not make them worthy, but shows them by grace to be so. In verse 11, Paul prays that they would walk in consistency with their kingdom calling. I think that's what we have here. For God to count them worthy means that he is pleased with their walk. In effect, it is God's well-done, good, and faithful servant. Uh, What does this walk look like? Well, it fulfills all the good pleasure of his goodness, as he says. Goodness is part of the fruit of the Spirit. It's a life well-lived that is consistent with God and his purposes. Uh, Jump down underneath the uh, Acts 10.18 reference. Faith is taking God at his word. It's resting in his promises. The work of faith with power is walking by faith depending on the power of the Holy Spirit to do what God calls us to do, namely to be his witnesses and glorify him. In context, in the context of persecution, this means that the word of God and his promises are our guide. Instead of responding in the flesh, we rest in God, knowing one day God will make all things right. He will vindicate it's a matter of faith. We believe God. Uh, Verse 12, that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. The goal is that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in the believer, that the person of Christ be glorified in us. Uh, and, you know, I love this verse, Philippians 1.20 at the bottom, where Paul says his desire is that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. The Christ would be on display. He would be magnified. All right, page 115, second paragraph there. <clears throat> and then Paul adds, and you in him. This seems to indicate that as we bring glory to Christ on earth, so we will also share in his glory in the end. It speaks of our union with Christ and that we will share in his glory. And then Paul concludes, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Literally, this says, the God and Lord of us, Jesus Christ. Uh, Skip down to the next paragraph. Only the grace of God can bring a person from being a hell-bound sinner to where he becomes a reflector of the glory of God who will ultimately share intimately in that glory. This is Paul's prayer, and on the basis of grace, it will be answered. Uh, Chapter 2. Let's get into chapter 2 and verse 1. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you. This is like some unfinished business. They still have some questions related to the timing of the rapture and so forth. And so he's dealing with this. Uh, Verse 1 Uh, Second uh, paragraph there. His uh, correction concerns the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. The phrases, the coming of our Lord and our gathering together to him, speak of the same event, namely, the rapture. Uh, Skip the Hebrew uh, quote. Paul, in effect, is appealing to them concerning the truth of the rapture and that therefore they should not fear that they are in the day of the Lord. This is an ongoing concern. Again, that influence was was in the group. 
the persecution they were experiencing is not a part of the day of the Lord judgment. And he's going to reason with them and show them why they cannot be in the day of the Lord. Uh, The word coming is a Greek word, parousia, literally means presence. Uh, The phrase gathering together is the idea of assembly, coming together. This is exactly what is pictured in 1 Thessalonians 4 in the rapture of the church, when all the church-age saints will be caught up to meet Christ in the air. That is a great assembly. Uh, That's what we're talking about here, being gathered together to Him. Page 116, top of the page, note Paul calls it our gathering together to Him. Uh, The hour is definitely a reference to believers who, who make up the church, including those in Thessalonica. Our, he's talking about the church saints there. Uh, so in view in this verse is clearly the rapture. The issue uh, in view is the timing of it. Next paragraph. Evidently, these false teachers uh, were saying that the current persecution they were experiencing was evidence that they were in the day of the Lord. Again, if you go by your circumstances, you can be misled. Now, I've taken seriously, that would definitely confuse them. They would be asking, did we then miss the rapture? Is the timing of the rapture within the day of the Lord and and not before it, as we had previously thought? Confusion and fear were reigning. And so he says, verse 2, Not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as is from us, as though the day of of Christ had come. More literally, the day of the Lord. Uh, Soon shaken means to react hastily or rashly. Shaken is the idea of being moved to and fro to wavers. They're quivering in their, in their concern about this. Uh, next uh, line, the sentence here. Troubled is, is the idea of being inwardly disturbed and frightened. Paul is not certain of the exact source of this agitation, but evidently he's gotten wind of false teachers lying about his teaching. I mean, if you can say, hey, Paul's with us. Paul says we're going into the day of the Lord. Well, that'd be persuasive. These false teachers were evidently claiming that the day of the Lord had indeed commenced. We're there. Judgment has fallen. And that Paul was now in agreement with this teaching. That's what they're saying. Paul mentions three areas of counterfeit concern. By spirit would indicate some kind of false prophecy. Next paragraph. By word evidently refers to rumors about what Paul had said. And letter may refer to a forged letter which someone had presented. So there was... There was this kind of influence that's going on there. Uh, Next uh, paragraph. Note the King James has the day of Christ in verse 2, but there is not very good manuscript support for it. The better reading, the older manuscripts, which most scholars recognize, is the day of the Lord. I think that's what we're talking about here. Uh, That is clearly the subject of concern in context. The day of Christ normally refers to the rapture, while the day of the Lord refers to the time of the judgment that follows the rapture. The reason they were all shook up is that they feared that they had entered the day of the Lord as the context of verses 3 and 4 clearly go on to show. Now, the day of the Lord relates to the period of time following the rapture, which is a time of worldwide judgment as described in detail in Revelation 6 through 19. To think you have entered into that period of time would indeed be disturbing. Uh, Let's jump down in uh, to the middle of page 117, and I've got a couple of slides here. Oh, you can't see it though, can you? Well, you can see it in your book there. The Thessalonians' error was uh, that uh, we're already in the day of the Lord judgment. Okay, we were in the church age, but now we've lapsed into the day of the Lord judgment. That, that was what they were, the air was, that they were entertaining. And Paul's correction, hey, Paul's correction is bigger than their air. How about that? <laughs> uh, he's saying, no, we're still here in the church age. We haven't entered into the day of the Lord. This is, this is the correction here. Uh, we're not going... And, you know, there's been guys, really good Christian guys even, who have really made the mistake saying, well, we're going to go into the day of the Lord. We're going to go halfway, midway. You know, Rosenthal, I love Marv Rosenthal, dear brother, but boy, he was really off on this, saying we're going three quarters into the, into the you know, tribulation period. Uh, no, he's making a correction here. And here's what he goes on to say, verse 3. Let no one deceive you by any means. That's always good. Don't let anybody deceive you. 
For the day will not come, the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord judgment, will not come unless the falling away comes first. So that has to be in place first. And the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. The word deceive means to mislead or to lead into error. Paul uses the term to describe Eve being deceived by the serpent in 2 Corinthians. To help them clearly discern, Paul states that two things must be in place before the day of the Lord can commence. Two things, only two. These are two major markers that must be in place in order for the day of the Lord to go forward. If these two things are not in place, then Paul says you can be assured you are not in the day of the Lord judgment. And those two things that must precede the day of the Lord judgment are, first, the falling away, and then the man of sin is revealed. These must be in place. You're not in the day of the Lord until these two things are in place. Uh, You know, uh, let's jump down, page 118, middle of the page here. But note the two stated uh, major markers that must be in place before the day of the Lord comes, as brought out by Paul. Uh, How should the phrase falling away be understood? It's important because it must come first before the day of the Lord. So it's important to understand this. Uh, this must be in place. This falling away, what, what is it? It's got to be in place first. Um, the Greek word translated falling away is literally apostasia. It's actually made up of two Greek words combined into one. The, uh, this word consists of apo, meaning away from, and stasis, meaning standing. So quite literally, this word apostasia means standing away from. So Paul says the standing away from must happen first. But the question remains, what does this standing away from refer to? The word apostasy is found only two times in the New Testament. It'd be nice if it was three so we could, you know, have a, you know, cast a deciding vote, right? We only got two times uh, in the New Testament here in 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 and also in Acts 21. The challenge is that apostasy has two legitimate meanings and hence there's been much discussion as to how it should be understood here in 2 Thessalonians 2, 3. The primary meaning uh, is apostasy in the sense of religious defection away from God's truth. This is how it's used in Acts 21, where Paul was charged with forsaking, that is, apostatizing or defecting away from the law of Moses. Uh, That is one legitimate meaning. That's true. So we want to do give a little space here for good men to disagree. Uh, And in fact, in the Septuagint, this is the primary way it's used. Uh, The Septuagint was the... uh, translation of the Old Testament into Greek. And that's the way they used it. This view sees the apostasy as a major defection from the faith prior to the day of the Lord. Note the definite article is in view here, meaning the apostasy, apostasia. It's not a general apostasy that has characterized various eras in history, but rather a very specific one. This is the apostasy. It's a standout apostasy. Page 119. And uh, jump down. Let's uh, skip that first paragraph. However, the word apostasy can also have another meaning. Uh, Admittedly, it's a secondary meaning. Admittedly, but secondary meanings are legitimate meanings too. Uh, But still a legitimate one. It can simply mean departure as one would leave from one place to go to another. Some scholars, therefore, say that the apostasy in view here means departure and has in view the rapture, departure of the church. Tim LaHaye says, the first seven translations of the English Bible translated it as departure. No one knows why the translators of the King James Version rendered it falling away or why others translate it rebellion. A case can be made that all seven of the earliest translations of the English Bible were right in rendering it departure, which could mean physical departure or rapture. Tim LaHaye. And then, of course, we have, you know, I give them here. Uh, Put my slide up here. You know, we got all these. The Wycliffe Bible departure, Tyndale departure, Coverdale, Kramer, Breaches, Biza, Geneva, all departing. And then King James departed from departing. Right? Translated falling away. And we've had great confusion ever since. Uh, Jump down, skip that next paragraph and the, and the sentence there. Apostasy viewed as the departure in context may essentially apply to the Holy Spirit. 
Paul has a tendency to develop his thought and build on what he is saying. Uh, We may have that here. In verse 7, Paul speaks of the restrainer who will be taken out of the way. I take this to be the Holy Spirit. So it is possible to equate the departure in verse 3 with the restrainer who is taken out of the way in verse 7. And so uh, note, I make that connection here. Uh, The falling away, departure comes first. Uh, I would connect that in the flow of thought to uh, he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And so note, I say theologically this all fits. The, the church age is sometimes called the age of the Spirit. Top of page 120. The Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost. That's the birthday of the church. I mean, that was the big event. The Spirit's coming. And he will depart at the rapture in a kind of reversal of Pentecost. And of course, as a byproduct of this removal, the church will be removed as well because the church is sealed by the Holy Spirit. Think of the Holy Spirit's specialized ministry as two bookends of the church age. And so I'll just put it up here, but it's in your book. Uh, Jump down, uh, skip that next paragraph. The bottom line is that I take the departure here in reference to the Holy Spirit whose removal inherently involves the removal of the church because the church is sealed with the Spirit. The whole life of the church is bound up with the Spirit. If he is removed, the church by necessity must also be removed. And by that I mean his ministry in relationship to the church. Of course, the Spirit is always universally represented everywhere all the time. That was true before he came on the day of Pentecost, and it will be true after the church is gone. But in reference to the church. So uh, I think we have one event, different aspects here. Uh, Our gathering... The removal of the church, 1 Thessalonians 4, the rapture. Uh, But also there's the the departure, the removal of the Spirit. Uh, I think this is one event, uh, all taking place in in one package here. And as we go along, I think uh, we will see here that this results in the manifestation of the Antichrist. Uh, The removal of the Spirit's special ministry through the church, that's really what's holding back uh, the emergence of the Antichrist. Okay, page 121, and we got one minute, so we're going to have to wrap this up. Uh, Paul then identifies Antichrist as the son of perdition. This defines his destiny. His character is defined by lawlessness, while his destiny is defined as perdition. Perdition refers to a state of ruin or destruction, a loss of well-being, but not extinction. Next paragraph. So the thought of verse 3, as I take it, is that before the day of the Lord comes in earnest, two things must be in place. Number one, the departure of the Spirit and His restraining ministry through the church must take place first. Second, uh, number two, which results in the Antichrist being revealed as seen in the signing of a seven-year covenant with Israel. So here's what we have. And here's what we have. (laughs) Uh, First, the departure of the Spirit, and then the man of sin is revealed. Then the day of the Lord comes. And the man of sin is revealed as he signs that seven-year covenant with Israel. Okay, well, we're out of time. We'll finish up tomorrow night. We've got one more night left, and we'll conclude uh, the book. Let's pray together. Lord, again, we thank you for our study. We thank you for uh, Paul's reassuring words that uh, we are not in the day of the Lord judgment. All kinds of difficult circumstances have come down in different waves through the church age. But none of that, uh, none of those are the, are the markers that we have entered into the day of the Lord. Uh, there must first be uh, the departure, uh, and then there must be the revealing of the man of sin. These are the markers uh, under inspiration that Paul gave to the Thessalonian church. Lord, again, we thank you for the hope that we have, uh, our blessed hope that the Lord Jesus Christ will come in our lifetime, even perhaps uh, this evening. Uh, Help us to live ready. Again, thanks for our time in the Word. May it bear fruit in our lives. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Hope to see you tomorrow night, our concluding evening.